Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Acts 18 opens with the missionaries in Corinth. Corinth was a port city. It was the capital of the province of Achaia. Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila here because they are tent makers. Paul also is a tent maker. This shows us that Paul is supporting his missionary efforts in this way. So sometimes he works, sometimes he has enough to live off of, but he is connected with other tent makers and is doing some work. I remind you that Claudius was in power from 41 to 54 AD. Um, Silas and Timothy finally arrive over in Corinth. Paul declares that he is focusing on the Gentiles because of Jewish opposition. He has said this before. He said it in chapter 13, verse 46. He's going to say it again. And yet, he continues to approach Jews on his travels. He stays here. They stay here about 18 months. The Jews are going to come over and attack again. Now, when we talk about the Jews attacking, this is not any reason for us to develop an anti-Semitic view to ourselves. That is not what we're talking about. This is more about um, people who don't accept what God is doing in a particular way. This is not against a whole race of people. The world always has those who reject Jesus and those who accept Jesus. And I think that we need to deal as kindly as we can with those who don't accept Jesus as a way of winning them over, first with our kindness, then with our respect, and then maybe we have the opportunity to share the gospel. So again, we have um, Jews opposing. They end up before the proconsul Gallio, um, who really doesn't want to get involved. Interesting to me that the mob turns on Sosthenes, who is the synagogue leader, the one who is the leader of the mob. More than likely, they felt like he should have come up with better secular charges. Like if we're going to go to the secular officials, to the Roman folks, you should have known what they would have um, been willing to accept in here. We should have made up something they would listen to. But here's the lesson. A mob will turn on you. When we stir up a mob, we have to be careful about inciting people to high levels of passion um, because that mob can turn in, in a moment on us. You need to be careful of cultivating and stirring drama that we don't end up being on the receiving end of that. It's never an attractive look for Christians, um, and it's just something we should really, really tamp down in our churches. Paul returns to Antioch. Um, Priscilla and Aquila make the journey with him, at least as far as Ephesus. He has taken a Nazarite vow. Go back to number six for more information on that. Perhaps he is um, praying and advocating for the Jewish believer, for the Jews who don't believe, 
Um, maybe he is trying to figure out how do we continue to carry the gospel forth. Usually a Nazarite vow was to renew and deepen our connection with God, much in the same way we might practice that during Lent now, they would have practiced a Nazarite vow. But now that that is over, he needs to clean up. He needs to shave and cut his hair and all those kinds of stuff. Priscilla and Aquila meet Apollos. Apollos is a fantastic speaker, a passionate believer, but he doesn't have all the full information. He wanted to see religious reform, repentance. He opposed hypocrisy among those who said they follow God. He had come to this movement through John the Baptist, but he doesn't realize all of who Jesus is. So Priscilla and Aquila are going to mentor him and help him reach the fullness of this. And he's going to become quite a powerful preacher with the help of the Holy Spirit, very eloquent in what he does. And I will say that more than a few scholars believe that Apollos may be the author of the book of Hebrews. The author is not named. Traditionally, we've attributed it to Paul, but it doesn't sound much like Paul's other writings. It's very different. We'll talk more about that when we get to the book of Hebrews. In chapter 19, Apollos has gone to minister in Corinth. Paul comes to Ephesus. Um, Others who knew only what Apollos had known before Priscilla and Aquila need to be mentored now. So there were others who had responded either to John the Baptist and his ministry or to Apollos who was a continuation of John the Baptist's ministry, now they need to see the fullness of Jesus as well. I think it's interesting that Jesus sent the Gadarene demoniac home. He wanted to become a disciple and follow Jesus, and Jesus sends him home. Go home to your people, to the people who know you. Stay here and share what God has done. It would have been easier probably for him to leave because he had all this history of being crazy, which makes a a really powerful testimony, but it can be easier to go tell that testimony somewhere else than with the people who knew you when you were crazy. That's when we come to Christ. The people who knew us when we were heathen sometimes have a hard time seeing us differently. But here, Apollos leaves where he is before he has gone back and preached that fully and taught it fully to those who have followed him. I'm not criticizing that. I'm simply saying God calls us differently. There are times God calls us to stay put, and there are times God calls us to go somewhere else. We must be open to someone else having a call to ministry, a call to follow God in a way that is different from the call we are experiencing. Now we have an episode with the sons of Sceva. This episode really reminds me of Mark chapter 6, verses 54 and 55. Um, Fabric taken from Paul heals people. Paul has some amazing healing abilities. Um, This implies, with it talking about the cloths that he had touched, that had touched his skin, that even his sweat is healing This, again, is going to place him on par with Peter. Remember, Peter's shadow healed people. It's also going to place him clearly as an apostle, um, as a prophet, as a minister of God, that God's power resides with him the way it does with others. In fact, in this case, it literally oozes out of him 
as sweat and perspiration on his skin. The sons of Sceva are Jewish exorcists. They deal in the supernatural area of the Jewish faith. They want the power that they're seeing in Paul to heal, to set free. But rather than converting and learning about what's happening, they simply um, begin to copy what it is that they see. The thing is, they don't have Jesus, and they don't have the Holy Spirit, and so they are not effective. The demons actually whip up on them uh, pretty good. We cannot pretend to walk in the power of God. Either we do or we don't. Now, we can fool some people. We can talk fancy and spin. We can have a charismatic personality and fool people. But eventually, the truth comes out. We either walk in the power of God or we do not. And eventually, we tend to get a pretty good whipping when somebody figures it out. Burning their books means um, there's no going back. They're burning what they know of how to practice the former things. This is a powerful, widespread local revival that happens. But every good is usually um, usually faces an equal and opposite reaction. Um, Demetrius fears economic loss, um, and he perhaps he also doesn't like he doesn't want to see the decline of the religion as well, but he's going to stir up yet another mob. Are you noticing how easily people can be recruited into becoming a part of something they don't really understand all the details of? It really doesn't speak very well of our ability to be fooled and to be taken in. Verse 36 is good advice. Verse 36 says, Since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. So this is someone who is not even a believer, really, of the way, but he's just saying, look, um, look, we see the fact that they're doing some good stuff. We see them healing. We see, we can't argue with with that. Since we don't really understand all that's going on, we should shut up and sit down, um, which warns me very often that before I have an opinion and I speak on something, I need to pause and consider, do I know all the facts? Do I have the full information? Am I being manipulated or used in either intentionally or unintentionally? And sometimes the very best thing that we can do is just to to be silent and go about minding our own business. This doesn't mean that we should not stand up for people who are being mistreated but we need to be careful in discerning what the will of God would have us do. Chapter 20, Paul goes to Macedonia and to Greece. Paul repeatedly encourages believers in all the areas where he has ministered in the past. Opposition is a clear part of ministry. It keeps happening over and over and over. It's almost as if you can judge whether or not you are being effective by whether or not people are opposing you. If everybody's happy and, gen- you know, maybe we're just tickling ears and doing what people want instead of doing what God wants. The witness of Scripture certainly seems to be that following God and doing those things that God calls us to do inevitably receives opposition from some. 
Okay, the next gentleman's name I have a hard time pronouncing. Eutychus is how I pronounce it. As with many of these names, you just have to dig in. Eutychus is a young man. He falls asleep because Paul is preaching too long. He's preached a long sermon. He's listening well into the night. He falls asleep, falls out of the window, and falls three stories. This, too, reminds me of Elijah's resuscitation or resurrection of a boy in 1 Kings 17. Paul, however, get after they heal the boy, um, which, by the way, it says bending over him. If we look at the original language, it says he literally fell upon him. So he lays on top of him very much the way that Elijah does in 1 Kings, which is why it triggers that with me. Anyways, after the boy is healed... Paul goes right on preaching. Let me just say as a preacher, here's a tip. When you've preached so long that someone has died, it's time to stop. Uh, save, save part of it for another day. Every sermon doesn't have to be in, in the one. Verse 6, it mentions unleavened bread. This would have been Passover, which is in the spring. Verse 16, Pentecost would have been 50 days after Passover. Paul here gives a farewell speech to the believers in this area. This is much like those that are given by Moses and David and Joshua and even by Jesus. People tend to remember the last words that we say to them, which should also make us cautious of the last words that we say. In chapter 21, the disciples at Tyre try to dissuade Paul from going back to Jerusalem. I want to point out here that both are hearing the Holy Spirit. Paul knows that Jerusalem is going to be dangerous for him, that it's not going to go well. That's why he's giving a farewell speech in the previous chapter. Now, this group of people hears that it's going to be dangerous, and they try to get him not to go. So they're hearing the same thing, but they have two different responses to what they've heard. Some say, go on. Others say, don't go. And what is the motivation? One is to save Paul's life. The others is to take forth the gospel. Um, which one wins? The, the Holy Spirit has to lead each individually. The Spirit sometimes reveals a difficulty that faces us ahead. Sometimes we just hear the Holy Spirit telling us, this is not going to be easy. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to avoid it. Sometimes the Holy Spirit tells us that so that we can be prepared, so we can shore up our defenses, get strong in our faith, and um, be ready to face what is coming. The Jerusalem believers under James's leadership um, rejoice rather than resist what God is doing among the Gentiles. This is a good sign, but not all among them feel that way. Um, James asked Paul to demonstrate his faithfulness as a Jew in order to help facilitate their receptance. So let's show them that you're still a faithful Jew, even though you're ministering to the Gentiles. It'll help them hear what God is doing over there. There are some who say that this is a repeat of what we have in Acts chapter 15. I personally don't think it is. I think there was more than one meeting. They reaffirm the same decision that they have made before, um, but this seems to be later in Paul's ministry to me. Paul is arrested in the temple. Jews from Asia, probably from over in Ephesus, come. 
um, and to cause trouble the same way they have before. I'm really, really amazed and a little bit impressed by the extent to which they are committed to their opposition of this. I'm always amazed at how firmly can people can get on board with something that wasn't really affecting them. The accusations that they make, however, are just not accurate. Um, They throw Paul out of the temple and they shut the gate behind him. Shutting the gate would be representative of excommunicating Paul and the Christians, the people who follow Jesus, like, get out and stay out. You are not part of us. This actually is a fulfillment of Agabus's prophecy from 2110. It's fulfilled. Um, and let's remember, Romans don't like riots. Roman leaders don't want rioting in their empire. Um, the crowd keeps yelling. And this reminds me of the way the crowd yelled when Jesus was arrested and they were given the opportunity to have Jesus released or Barabbas and the crowd just kept yelling. A mob mentality cannot be controlled and it's very hard when people feed off one another's energy to settle down and be reasonable. Paul defends himself, um, but there are there are even more wrong assumptions than had been previously attributed to what the Jews were saying, and he defends himself against them. Chapter 22 is a continuation of his defense. He tells his story and he witnesses. Every time the Jews come to oppose him, he gets an opportunity to talk about Jesus again, which is exactly what they don't want. Their opposition actually accomplishes the very thing they're opposing. His story, his whole story is a witness to Jesus Christ. Verse 17 gives us some new information. Um, Paul has had another experience of Jesus at the Jerusalem temple. This one reminds me of Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 10. Paul's claim of a divine mission to the Gentiles provokes an angry response from his Jewish audience. I told you before that I believe the primary opposition that the Jews are having to this, what makes it intolerable as a movement within Judaism, is the idea that God could love and include the Gentiles. So the tribune, um, the Jewish, I mean, the Roman leader here, Um, doesn't speak Hebrew. So he doesn't understand what Paul is saying. He doesn't understand why the crowd erupts with such hatred. It was not legal to flog a Roman citizen before a trial and a verdict. This was a tactic to elicit information. A prisoner could be beaten um, to get the full story out of them, to get them to confess to something. Roman citizens were not allowed to be treated this way. They could be beaten or flogged after a conviction as a a punishment with a certain number of licks. Paul was born a Jewish citizen. He didn't purchase his citizenship. That makes his claim to Roman citizenship even firmer than that of the tribune who has purchased his. We believe that Paul's parents, who were faithful Jews in Antioch, were probably granted citizenship for some sort of service that they had given the empire. So it was given, they were given citizenship, and then Paul was born to citizens, making him a citizen. This takes us through chapter 22 of the book of Acts. 
Oh, 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 oh,